Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 4, Personal Philosophies of Education, with Dr Kevin Smith. Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast. It's lovely to be back with you, and it's lovely to be here with a fairly regular guest and someone who's getting his second complete episode all to himself after some sterling work on our panel episodes. Dr. Kevin Smith, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. We like to call you Dr. Kev now because I feel like we're we're mates. <laughs> we've, we've gotten to the Kev level, I think. Yes, yes. I appreciate that. <laughs> and this time you're here with us in person, which is always a good thing. Last time we were down the line and I remember there being much sort of frivolity around salsa. You'd be making salsa at home. Oh, yeah. Do you yeah. remember? We still do that. You do? Yeah. Good to hear. <laughs> so... Listeners who are regular or regular listeners of our podcast may have clocked that you were in our final episode of Series 5. It was a panel discussion about the role of research in curriculum reform in Wales. And you were one of our panellists, one of our contributors. And you said something in that five minute presentation that really struck us as something that we wanted to delve into a bit more deeply in this episode. So we're going to just play that out to begin with, and then we'll start to sort of unlock it through the course of the episode. So Tom, take it away. Hit the button. Sometimes we rely too heavily on evidence as an answer. And research evidence is never the answer. Research evidence should never say, say, this is what works. Because it's only when we publish research, and I, I publish research, and when I publish it, what I'm trying to say is, is that I'm a committed, dedicated academic and scholar who is trying to do things honestly and with integrity and ethically. I've chosen these methods because of my philosophy. You know, uh, these research methods are informed by methodology, which is just the philosophical justification for the research methods I choose. I talk about the actual methods through which I generated the, uh, the evidence, and I talk about the ethical considerations I had as I did those things and analyzed it. And what I'm saying is, is that in light of all these things, this is the best that I can come up with under these circumstances, and these are, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Now, I'm not saying implement this in your classroom. I'm not saying take this recipe and make little curriculum cakes, because that's not going to happen either. What I'm saying is read this, contemplate it, think about your context, think about the people you're working with. What is your evidence from your own personal practice? And how can you make sense of what that conversation between you and my evidence is saying? And how can that lead you to make those better decisions in the classroom? So there you have it. Really struck me this small extract and it's something that I think Tom and I would like to use with our student teachers at the start of the year because I think number one I like the way you're sort of pulling the curtain back on what you are trying to do when you're conducting your own educational research and that sort of transparency about how you did it and why you did it a certain way but then what the offer is and what you hope a classroom practitioner, educational practitioner will then do with that research, which is certainly a repackage. It's not a do this because my research says it works. So I think what we want to try to achieve with this episode is for us to talk about how, like how do we achieve that in the education system and you know, with the bits and bobs that we have sort of control over as a community. And I guess the first question I have for you is, do you think that 
when we think about some of the books that are out there becoming quite prevalent in schools, I wonder, do they set out their stall in the same way as you try to as a researcher? And is that a problem? That is a question. <laughs> I don't know. When I read books like, like what you're talking about, it reminds me of conversations I had earlier on when I was doing my teacher education as an aspiring teacher, and I, I came into teaching later on in life because I, I would, had been working in the private sector. I was in marketing and sales and all stuff like that, and, and I hated it. But I didn't have a language to communicate what it was that I didn't enjoy about it. And I'll skip the whole story, but what, at the end, what, what, when I came into my teaching degree and uh, we were talking about differences between education, school, and training. And so education we can think of as something that happens to us irrespective of whether we want it to or not. The education is from the womb to the tomb. It's life, essentially. But what happens when we need to educate people? You know, and that's when schooling comes into play because we start thinking about how do we educate people at a large scale? How do we educate people for aims that we think are important to society, for all the different you know, aspects of society, economically, politically, environmentally, et cetera? And so that's where school comes into play. And schooling changes education. It is different, isn't it, of course? But what I'm afraid happens most often in schools, and this is not a, a critique of teachers, it's more of just schools in general. We'll use that word as kind of just a big ideal type, you know, as an easy way of talking about something. But what I think often happens in schools is not so much education or even schooling, but training because training focuses on skills or technique. And I'm afraid that that's the impact many of these books have, is they emphasize technique so much, and they purport that these techniques are evidence-based and that they will produce the outcomes that they claim will happen. But they can't predict the future. They can't say that that's gonna happen in every circumstance, under every condition, in every school, with every child and every teacher. And so it's these kinds of things where we have these mass-produced, really efficient, you know, sharp kinds of technical manuals that are handed to people. And I think that limits the way teachers can conceptualize and think about their practice. Something I've been more and more curious about, I think, is the discussion about research-informed practice in schools has kind of taken shape over the last few years, is you have almost these two different forms that it takes. You've got these books, do this, and you know, you're going to be a great teacher, very sort of nuts and bolts, outcomes, do that thing, that thing's going to work. And then the other kind of piece of the puzzle, I suppose, is this, do classroom-based research and inquiry. And the promise of one, which is do this thing and you'll be a great teacher, and the promise of the other always seems to be kind of around difficult conversations, messy situations, challenge the status quo. They almost seem to be promising quite opposing things. And I suppose while people in charge in schools might be quite happy with the stuff that's being promised by the books, they might be slightly less happy in their heart of hearts with what's being promised by classroom-based research and inquiry because maybe they don't want difficult conversations or for their status quo to be challenged. Mm. How do you, as a teacher, I suppose, sitting quite, quite low in the pecking order, because it is a pecking order in schools, they're very, very hierarchical, 
how can you have difficult conversations and challenge the status quo and get into messy situations without potentially getting yourself sacked or, or being seen to kind of not be doing the right thing by your pupils because you're rocking the boat. I mean, how, how can you go about having those difficult conversations? You might be asking the wrong guy. <laughs> yes, I'm aware you were, you were in fact sacked from one of your teaching jobs, weren't you? <laughs> Um, so, assuming that they don't wish to follow your career path quite so well. If I, if, if I could just tell the story real briefly. Yes. Um, I was, this is around the mid-2000s, and I'm teaching at an inner-city school in Cincinnati, Ohio, at a time when Cincinnati was the city, the, uh, the city that had the third highest murder rate in the United States at the time. We're talking just abject poverty, serious levels of social deprivation, but a, a really dedicated core staff and a lovely community and excellent students. And so they had a really great vibe about the whole place. But when I came in, and, and just like what I told you earlier, you know, the, I walk in day one and the principal comes up to me, here, Smith, boom, and he, this huge, thick book, it says, you know, learning Microsoft applications or something to that effect. I decided to make a real serious study of Dewey's work, and it had a huge impact on my life and in, in so many ways. And when Dewey talks about the curriculum, he talks about it as a, as a continuum. And on one end is the child, and on the other end is the curriculum. So what is the connecting factor here? It's pedagogy, right? And so I'm thinking, I need to think about my pedagogy, but what is pedagogy? And so many conversations I have with, with people here uh, in schools and, and elsewhere, when they talk about pedagogy, they think about it as techniques, instructional techniques. Well, my pedagogy relies heavily on direct instruction. Fine, okay. But that's, in my term, not pedagogy. Uh, pedagogy is more about the science of your teaching or the philosophy of your teaching more accurately. At that time, my philosophy of education was just kind of burgeoning, really, because I was just getting into these kinds of conversations. And uh, I was really taken by Paulo Freire and John Dewey, of course, and Bell Hooks and, and other educators who were thinking outside of the normal discourses of education. And I said, well, I'm going to try to liberate my curriculum. We decided that we were going to use the standards and the benchmarks of the technology curriculum as kind of milestones, and that what they were actually going to learn was determined by the students. And so we'd, ha we'd spend some time deliberating amongst them in different groups and eventually gaining consensus about what it is we want to study. And so, like, at the time, there was a big debate in Ohio about whether there should be smoking inside uh, restaurants and bars and stuff like that. And a lot of my students were smoking, a lot of their families smoked. It was important to them. They wanted to learn about it. And then when we were learning about the legislation, they're like, well, we want to communicate our views to people about it. I said, okay, well, part of our curriculum says we can format Microsoft Word documents as posters and letters and this, that, and the other. So if we learn these things, then you can do this communication that you want to do. And so they wrote letters to the local council people, and they made posters around the school asking people their thoughts. And there were more discussions about this legislation that was happening amongst the students, you know, and outside of the school and with students, with people outside of the school. And so it caused a lot of hubbub. And then from there, the curriculum kind of grew and grew. <clears throat> and I was noticing similarities between what they were facing in their lives and the experiences that my mother faced in the South Wales, growing up in the South Wales Valleys. In the, she was born in the 40s, 40s, 50s, and 60s before she immigrated to America. So I found this wonderful documentary on um, Abravan that the BBC produced, right? And I showed it to my students. And there's a couple of great sequences in the film where the 
the local people were fighting against the National Co Board. And that clicked with my students. But I didn't know it clicked with them. And so uh, on Friday, you know, I said goodbye to them. I said, yeah, on Monday, have a great week. And I come back into the classroom. None of my students are in the classroom. So I go downstairs, and they're all sat down in the corridor. And I said, well, what are you doing? Uh, and they said, well, we're protesting like you told us. <laughs> and I said, let's back up, because I don't remember actually saying that. But we were talking a lot about civic action and, and, and protests and stuff like that. And they were supposed to have a position on the school board, um, which led the board of governors, uh, a student position on there. And they weren't uh, giving the students the opportunity to do that. And the students wanted that opportunity. At the end of the day, it, it turns out that um, they, they actually brought in the superintendent and they negotiated their position on the board and they got their position, which was fabulous. But I was called into the head teacher's office a few months later and was told that my contract was not going to be renewed for next year because of budget cuts, but it didn't feel like budget cuts. So long story, sorry about that, but I guess one thing, a few things that I learned from that was, is that you can rock the boat without rocking the boat, you know, uh, so to speak. You, wars of positions, wars of maneuver. So you find out where you are within an organization and what space, where do you draw your boundaries? How can you, uh, who are your allies? Who are the people who might want to collaborate with you? Who are the people that can give you different points of view, um, but don't necessarily block your way, you know, critical friends and those kinds of things. And do the work that you need to do without placing yourself in a precarious position. And that's what I did. I put myself in a precarious position because I underestimated the pushback that I was going to get. Because that school that I was in, while it had many great qualities about it, the leadership in the school treated it very much almost like a military academy. You know what I mean? They, they were ex-military people, and they ran a very tight ship. And maybe having someone trying to do curriculum and pedagogical innovation in a way that, without talking to them about it first, and in a way that maybe they didn't agree with, was too much for them. So I think the important thing is to know your context and know who your people are that you're working with, and and truly engage in these kind of dialogic discussions with your with your students and with those allies that you have about what it is you want to achieve with your students. Um, because I think you can have these innovations, and you can have these different pedagogical experiences. It just is how, when, and where, so that you can minimize the kind of unintentional negative consequences. And speaking of which, I suppose if you are a, a leader in a school who is in charge of pedagogical innovation, uh, teaching and learning, if you've got that kind of title, that kind of position, and you have been tasked with, you know, bringing, rolling out something new that's addressing a particular problem. How can you present that to staff in such a way that isn't hierarchical, that sort of mitigates against the risk of a enforced, standardised approach that encourages staff to do the things that you said at that clip, actually, which is here is some here is some here is some ideas. What do we think about them? How does one, if they're in that sort of leadership position, sort of safeguard against that? Because I I do worry, going back to my sort of first question, that we can be they're very compelling. Some of these books that are out there, mm -hmm. and these figures that you know are at the helm with with um, the practices that they are that they're endorsing. So how do we become sort of critical consumers of that? Okay. Yeah, the uh, one thing I think we underestimate is the 
the power that comes with these books sometimes. You know, somebody introduces it and they, where, well, where did you get this from? Oh, everybody's talking about this book. They have this kind of inertia that comes with them. And so if we as educators aren't prepared to respond to that kind of force and power and inertia, then we're overwhelmed by it. And so for me, the, the key for me as a, as a practitioner and, the, and as an educator that is working with future teachers and also colleagues and, and other teachers in other places and stuff like that, the thing that I've seen in their lives is what, when we take a moment to think about our pedagogy, our philosophy of education, that's, I think, the starting point for all these conversations about how do we engage critically, how do we take these books as starting points from which we can build our pedagogy rather than have it replace or exist as our pedagogy, which I think often happens. I think one of the main priorities that school leaders could promote in their schools is this idea of a philosophical engagement or an engagement with philosophies of education. And I think the important thing to consider is that there's a an understanding of philosophy that really helps us grapple with this idea of how it can be used for our pedagogy in that philosophical thinking is not searching for an answer. Philosophical thinking is about rich, systematic, creative questioning about things. You know, what is the right approach to teaching uh, reading? Is it whole language or is it phonics, for instance? Well, evidence, research evidence might say phonics is more effective and that's established upon certain criteria and certain measurements. But what do you do if a child hates the phonics approach? And because of that experience in school, it might have, it, they might act up more in the classroom, they might go home and, and be not happy at home, or they might have ripples into the future. You know, so thinking philosophically about this changes things. You don't just say, well, it has to be phonics because the research says it's phonics. You can say, well, actually, let me think about what is the ethical dimension of my pedagogy. Let me think about the aesthetic or the axiological uh, dimension of my pedagogy where we talk about value, for instance, or, or the, um, what's the ontological component of my pedagogy in terms of what, I, what do I believe about human beings and the human experience of education and how does it inform my pedagogy. If we think about teachers as purveyors of knowledge, as people who trade in the business of knowledge, quote unquote, then if they can't answer questions about what is knowledge, how do human beings acquire knowledge, and how do we justify these claims, then they don't have as many tools at their disposal to respond to, you know, when people hand you something or here's teach like a champion and you think, well, my understanding of knowledge is different than what is presented here in this book. Maybe not so discreetly or explicitly, but like you said, kind of implicitly in the text, you don't just accept your position, you're open-minded to other positions, but you now have a response to which you can argue in positive ways what your stance is. And I think that's super important. Teachers have to stand up for themselves in their classrooms because that's their domain and it's their profession. You know, we identify as, as pedagogues, as educators and teachers, because it's important to us. There are very, very few people that get into teaching for reasons other than wanting to be fulfilled, I think. And so for me, this idea of excavating our pedagogical assumptions about ethics, about aesthetics, about ontology, about epistemology, all these things are super important because they, they have so many 
dimensions in our teaching and in the learning experiences there with people that if we, if we don't bring them out into the light, they remain un, unexamined. I think lots of teachers, as you sort of imply there, have probably got a philosophy somewhere in their heart. Uh, maybe it's, it's buried in there. They're kind of aware that it's there, but would really value some help to be able to articulate it, to crystallize it so that they can interrogate all the things that come at them in their working lives, whether that's the books or the situations or that particular pupil or that particular edict from their boss or whatever it may be. But perhaps kind of as you've, as you've suggested there, there's perhaps a missing piece of the puzzle in terms of a, a systematic provision of tools and resources to help that happen. Whereas you know, lots of forward thinking schools have got professional learning libraries and maybe they give a bit, bit of uh, non-contact time or giving people support to carry out research and inquiry but there's not anything kind of explicitly to help them draw out that philosophy and articulate it and argue it shall we give people some goodies have you got any goodies who should they be <laughs> reading who should they know about what techniques should they be aware of what things might help them draw that out uh well that's a good question. There's a lot. I think rather than kind of providing a list, although there will be a little list, <laughs> one thing I think is often when we think, you know, I'm going to read that. I, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read John Dewey's Democracy in Education, which I think everyone should read, by the way. Um, but Dewey's tough reading. Not only is does he write in the parlance of the you know, late 19th and early 20th century, but he also has a certain New England dialect and way of communicating that is very unique and distinctive. And he also uses terms unexpectedly within his philosophy. So when he's talking, if you ask anyone, what is experience? What would you say is the answer to that question? I mean, that's what everybody does. They stare off into space and they go, oh, yeah, I don't know, right? Because it's a tough question. Now, if you read Michael Young, for instance, and his work on powerful knowledge, every once in a while he'll talk about experience and, and knowledge that comes from experience. And for Michael Young, experience seems to be this kind of mental residue that comes from practical undertakings. But for Dewey, experience is more like culture. It's more like our social and cultural milieu that we find ourselves in. The milieu would be the environment. And so experience is not just things that are left over from doing things. Experience is a way of being, so it's an ontological component. It's a way of generating knowledge, so it's got an epistemological component. It's how we behave in situations, so it's got an ethical component. It's how we come to understand nature and beauty, so it has an aesthetic component. You know, so there's all these rich veins that come into his concept of experience that construct his philosophy of experience that if people just dive into doing read right away, they might not get it because he had such a hard time communicating. Experience is such a laden concept that we can't disassociate it from our assumptions about it to what he was thinking about it. So read secondary sources. So if you want to read, if you want to get a good grab on Dewey, then I would read the Centennial Handbook for Democracy and Education that was by Leonard Wax and I don't want to misname the other person, but Leonard Wax is one of the folks there. Leonard Wax, by the way, is, if not the foremost Deweyan 
expert. He's one of the most Deweyan experts. So you can find a lot of writing uh, by Leonard Wax, W-A-K-S, on Google Scholar and other um, libraries. So I would read secondary sources. Uh, Stephen Fessmeyer has a book on Dewey. That's excellent, but that's a, that is a philosophy book for, proper. I think it's great reading, and anybody should read it because Fessmeyer does a great job in making it accessible. It's not weird and alien and stuff like that. So if, if you want to get into conversations about uh, philosophical philosophies of education, I, I say start with secondary sources about them. But I do that with a caveat because, for instance, um, Daisy Christodoulou's book, the, Learning Myths. Yeah, the myths. Seven Myths. Seven Thank, myths. There we are. Seven Myths about Seven education myths. reviewed on this very podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, somebody handed me that book. Said you should read this, and and I thought they were telling me that because it was an excellent book that I would really enjoy, and they knew I was not going to be crazy about it and wanted me to. They wanted to talk to me about it afterwards, right? And so I'd, I'm not. I don't want to be unkind to the author. Uh, it's just that that first chapter of that book. I just I was like ranting in my office, right? You know because they. Uh, make, she makes this claim um, that Freire and Dewey don't want people to learn facts. Um, or that they felt like teaching facts like got in the way or something to that effect, which is such a gross misunderstanding and misrepresentation of what both Dewey and Freire are trying to do. And so I'm telling my colleague this, and they're like, well, is that just your opinion, man? You know? And I'm like, well, let's just look. Let's go to her reference section. So we looked at the reference section. I said, how many books by Dewey and Freire did she reference in that chapter? And she referenced Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which doesn't tell me that she actually read it because the way that she wrote about Freire does not sync up with what was written in that book. And then this other book, um, she doesn't even reference Dewey. She references a secondary source about Dewey. And so I always look at how many times are people referencing things are they referencing directly from the source? And then if they're referencing other people, secondary sources, who are those folks? Because you can start to get a profile of, of people's philosophies or ideologies of education when you go through the reference lists. And so I think that's another way to get into it is always when you're reading something, look at the references, go find those other sources. So start with secondary sources, vet those secondary sources, and then delve into the references that those offers are using to try to understand the genealogy, so to speak, of their, of their thinking that they put into that chapter or whatever you're reading. I'm just going to take a moment to, I'm going to say, put myself in the position of somebody who might not fully understand some of the terminology that you've been using. When actually, I'm going to fess up and say that I still don't have a full, firm grasp on ontology, epistemology, even reflexivity. And the reason being, on a personal level, is that I encountered those terms sort of at master's level, but more so now that I'm doing my doctorate. So why should we care about those terms? What do they mean in layman's terms? And why should we care about those terms? Okay. And, and anybody who talks about these terms was, is, was in the same boat. You know, I remember being so confronted by the term of ontology that I was, you know, like panicked almost. Like, how am I going to do this? I have to put this into my proposal for my thesis or whatever, and I don't know what they're talking about. So um, let's just go through. So there are some branches of philosophy that I think are apropos to our discussion. And the first one, of course, is epistemology. And that's just questions about knowledge. What is, what is it? Is knowledge something that exists in our minds? Is knowledge something that can be 
transferred, transmitted from one generation to the next? Or is knowledge something that is constructed socially through interactions and language and discourse? So, you know, there's different perspectives. Social realism, for instance, which is Michael Young's philosophy that he uses to present his idea of powerful knowledge, argues that knowledge is socially constructed, but that social construction of knowledge has a real effect in the world. And that's why it's powerful, is because it helps us to do things, it helps us to predict things, to model things, to explain things, those kinds. Of, and it's differentiated knowledge, it's specialized knowledge. So he's talking about the properties of knowledge. When he says powerful knowledge, powerful knowledge is specialized because it's produced through specific disciplines that have specific practices and specific ideas about things. It's differentiated because we have different disciplines who focus on specific things. You know, that, that's an epistemological discussion, right? The next um, one, ontology, is, is difficult because it's, it's about the nature of being. An ontological question would be, what is a human being? What, kinds of a, what kind of a being is a human being? Or what does it mean to be fully human? And people go, uh, you know, like, well, why should we ask these questions? Human beings are human beings. Well, maybe, right? Marx, for instance, if you look at Marx's critique of capital and his philosophy, he's saying that human beings are, in terms of ontology, human beings are the beings that use tools to manipulate their material environment. And part of that manipulation of the environment, that creating of things, our praxis, not only creates the things that we produce, like tools and, and goods, but it also constructs us, that we're the people who make things. So homo faber would be that ontological category. John Dewey would say, well, actually, I think human beings are social beings. You know, you, when a human being is born, it can't just live on its own. It has to be looked after. And as young people grow and mature in society, they're always going to be supported and suckered by more mature individuals if, if we want them to succeed. And so he's saying that human beings are homo societis. So there's these different kinds of conversations. And what that means is, is if you believe that human beings are born radically free into the world of all expectations from anything from God, from people, whatever, you're an existentialist maybe, right? So then if freedom is important to you, which is a key concept in existentialism, that means you have the freedom to choose. So you have to make choices. And an existentialist would believe that when we make these choices, not only do we have to make these choices, but we have to be held responsible for their consequences. So that's why we act. That's how we act in good faith. Well, I'm going to make these choices. I'm going to live this life. And it's up to me. That's going to change or that's going to influence the way you interact with your learners. You know, you, you're going to you make a decision of to give them as much freedom as possible, for instance, you know, rather than saying, you have to do it this way. So ontology has a huge component when it comes to pedagogy. And unfortunately, I think epistemology overshadows ontology. There's so many questions about knowledge. When the perennial question in curriculum is what knowledge is of most worth? And people go, well, that's an epistemological question. I'm like, well, it's true. But at the end, they talk about worth. What is the value of this knowledge? And that's a a different question, that's an axiological question where we talk about values. And so how do we value things? Why do we value things? What things do we find valuable? How do we justify what is worth knowing and what is not worth knowing, for instance? That comes into play.
So if we think in terms of curriculum, that now sets up an age-old kind of conflict, doesn't it? Knowledge of the powerful and powerful knowledge, right? And that's, that's what those two things are, what knowledge is of most worth knowing. And then, of course, ethics is a huge part of our pedagogy. There are very few professions in the world that have the duty of care that pedagogues have, that educators have, I think, you know, because not only are we responsible for the bodies in the room with us, and, but we're responsible for the spirit, the mind, the future to a degree, you know, like so much more. And that is predicated upon our pedagogy. So if we don't have a good ethical grounding of it, so an ethical question might be, how does a moral human behave? How does a moral human, maybe more appropriately, and this is what my mentor uh, Richard Quantz would always ask me, how does a moral human behave in a world that doesn't reward morality? And so as a pedagogue, as a teacher, how am I gonna behave in a classroom morally with these young people or whoever it is I'm working with? in terms of trying to achieve my pedagogical aims, their pedagogical aims, the aims of the school, those kinds of things. So all of these questions feel like they're really high level because they got big words with seven syllables and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, I think we are already wrestling with these conversations to, or these topics to some degree. We just don't have the space and time and energy in school to really dig into these things. And that's, that's a problem that school face all over the world and it's being reflexive almost being cognizant or being aware of your epistemology your ontology like how you're viewing the world what you're doing and the impact that it's having ethically morally is is it sort of being aware that you are operating with a particular lens way of being way of doing is that right i i think that's absolutely right Reflexivity is very close to another term, positionality. So as a researcher, for instance, when you're writing about your positionality, you're writing about who you are in relation to the people that you're working with and the topics that you're investigating. So if I'm a teacher who's asked to do action research, then I'm, if I'm writing about my positionality, I'm saying, well, I'm a teacher in a classroom and I'm looking at this issue but I also have relationships to students, relationships to colleagues. I'm trying to clear any fog that may re remain between me and connections to people, practices, the topic, et cetera. In terms of reflexivity, reflexivity is part of that process of investigating, that self-critical introspection about who am I? What am I trying to achieve? Am I doing this in the way that I want? Is this following the ethical procedures that I've laid out? Is this following the, the methodological concerns and claims that I've put forward? Am I examining my assumptions and biases? Because we can't eliminate the biases or the biases, right? We can only kind of recognize them and try to mitigate against them. And reflexivity is part of that process. You've given us a lot of different things to think about there, but what struck me the most was it's just sort of brought to the fore, they're not necessarily new, but they might be to our listeners, new lenses through which to sort of critique themselves, their practice, and, and to find new ways forward. So thank you, as ever, Dr. Kev, for all of that, and particularly the stories. <laughs> we always bring good stories for us. <laughs> all right. So I think you've, you've probably done your homework because you've been here before. There's something to try and something interesting. I'll leave it up to you, which you'd rather go for first. Something to try or something interesting. <sighs> 
Well, I'll, I'll try the interesting thing first, because um, I was reading the other day about consciousness. I've become very concerned about consciousness, because if I don't have some ideas about what consciousness is, then I don't know if I can really get to my students. You know, how are they aware and perceiving and being in the world, right? And so I became very dissatisfied with Cartesian duality, which is the, I think, therefore I am, mind is separate from the body, uh, because I started to read Dewey. And Dewey's like, no, that's not the case at all. Dewey, I love Dewey. Dewey is so great. You'd never think it. <laughs> <laughs> did, I, did I show you guys that? There's... <laughs> we should probably say that Kev has just flashed a tattoo of Dewey on his calf. <laughs> Thank you uh, to my daughter, who's a, a flourishing uh, tattoo artist. And she was like, I want to do a black and gray neo-traditional portrait. What do you want to do, Dad? And I was like, let's start with Dewey. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, Dewey was great because in 1938, he... Because he had so many miscommunications and misunderstandings about his philosophy, he said, I'm going to just try to write this as succinctly as possible. And the very first chapter, he says, education is caught up in either-or philosophies, right? traditional, progressive. And we are always at loggerheads with each other. And one main theme about Dewey's philosophy of experience, which you kind of wouldn't get at kind of first glance, but as you dig down and read more books, you come to understand what Dewey wants to achieve is a form of education that creates a curious, engaged, democratic society that collectively works together to solve individual, social group, and broader social problems. Right? We try to achieve certain aims. That requires integration. And integration is probably the greatest concept at the heart of Dewey's philosophy. So when I was thinking about consciousness, this idea of mind versus body doesn't work because I'm more persuaded by Dewey's ideas of integration. Because we know a lot about, like, for instance, embodied cognition now. We know that when we do certain things with our, you know, uh, moving our arms in certain ways, that parts of our brain that are associated with writing are, are firing off. And, like, there's a great book by Sheila McCreen uh, and another author. Um, if you type in Sheila McCreen and then uh, embodied cognition will come up. I think it's called Movement Matters, and it's open access, so anybody can get it. And it's fascinating because it's cognitive science, but it talks about how aspects of our material corporal being interact and influence our mental and spiritual state. So we have Cartesian duality, but then we have materialism. Materialism argues that consciousness is just all the physical stuff. Our thoughts are not anything that's airy or amorphous or uh, ephemeral. They're just hormones and chemicals and electrical synapses and stuff like that. Okay, fine. But gosh, I talk a lot. I take a long time to answer your questions. I'm sorry. But the idea that I find really interesting right now is called panpsychism. And panpsychism is drawing upon evidence from the natural sciences and physics and quantum physics as well that argues that consciousness is a reality of existence that consciousness is already embedded within the world and that everything has a form of consciousness about it. We know that when bees buzz around flowers, they increase their scent to draw the bees in. We know, obviously, that plants, when the sun comes, they kind of follow the plant. They are sensing, they are responding, and it's not this banal kind of stimulus response kind of stuff. There's an intelligence in nature. And so I'm very persuaded by this idea that consciousness might be just part of reality. 
The one thing that I want to learn more about is the second claim that comes with panpsychism that says, not only is consciousness everywhere, but there's this thing called cosmic consciousness that is the accumulation of all consciousness that we can tap into eventually. And so when people have a spiritual experience, when they have an after-death experience or feel the spirit when they're at church or whatever, that maybe they're tapping into this cosmic consciousness. That might be a little too far for me because I, I don't know. Like Dullin, of course, that you guys work with, he, he always talks to me about like spiritual, you know, holistic pedagogy, holistic curricula, and that the spiritual dimension, the ontological dimension of, of uh, which is an ontological dimension of human being. And I always have to push him back because I don't like any ideas of spirituality being of a divine nature or being involved with deity or anything like that. So when I talk about spirituality, I guess what I'm talking about is that spark of consciousness um, that we have as, as human beings. And that was not only interesting, but it will also be a, a, a sadness with us forever that our new podcast studio, complete with cameras, is not built in time to capture <laughs> that dewy tattoo moment. Yes, indeed. <laughs> How sad we're in a temporary studio when that happened. Never mind. Okay, and something that our listeners can try. Something can try. I think, so I had a, a life-changing experience throughout the pandemic, oddly enough. And um, it came out of, so there was a, a call for a, a paper from a journal called the Creative Exchange Journal. And they wanted people to do uh, a paper based on how did they learn about the Carrere method. The Carrere method is an autobiographical approach to curriculum theorize, theorizing that has four steps. You ruminate upon indelible educational experiences from the past. Then you think about educational aspirations in the future. You consider and investigate what you're doing now in terms of your practice. And then you bring that all together and analyze and interpret to create this kind of cogent statement of curriculum understanding that tries to answer the question, what has been and is now the nature of my educational journey? Mm -hmm. And I love the method, right? But I've always been kind of not sure if I knew if I was doing it right. That's a, I think a lot of teachers kind of wring their hands, am I doing this research right? Is it correct? You know, I, my head teacher wants me to do all this stuff. Uh, and I just don't know if I'm a researcher. And I wanted to write something about Carrere, because Carrere helped me as, an, as a teacher. But I, I, I couldn't write it. I was, I was really struggling. And so I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to go for a walk. And then I'll take a book with me and I'll read. You know. So I went out for like two or three miles. I'd sit down under a tree, read some stuff, come back. And I'd have some thoughts and I'd jot them down. Two miles became four, four became eight, eight became 12, 12 became 24. I was doing 30-mile walks. I was gone for nine, 10 hours sometimes. You know, And um, it transformed my body. Obviously, you know, I lost weight. I, uh, my legs became stronger. My lungs had more capacity. But what I found was, particularly because uh, when I go on a walk, because I live in the valleys, I'm always walking. You're not walking flat, all right? It's always up and down, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm climbing, you know, four or 5,000 meters in one of these walks. And there's something about walking uphill at pace when I just kick into a rhythm and my body automatically takes over. And when that happens, at least like I'm along for the ride and my body's just heading up the hill. And when that happens, my thoughts just come together, right? And that's this embodied cognition thing. But it's also about mobility and, and placement. And so when I would recommend that everyone try to go out on a reading walk, 
read something beforehand so you have some questions in your mind and go for a walk. And, and do this over the course of a couple of weeks and try to be consistent and maybe just you know three or four, four or five times. But try to notice about as you go about doing this, how things change. And it doesn't have to be a walk. It can be any kind of physical movement or, or whatever. But walking worked for me. You know, maybe dancing would work for someone else or whatever. But try that. Try to think about how we are thinking, not just with our brains, but with our bodies because I, I, it was an eye-opener to me. Dr. Kev, as ever, great episode, loads to think about, um, and hopefully you'll be back again uh, next year, if not sooner, um, to give us some more ideas to chew over as we walk up steep hills. <laughs> well, I'll show you my Paulo Freire tattoo that I'll have next time. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's got to be in a studio with cameras. <laughs> okay, well, we'll be back with you in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr. Kevin Smith from Cardiff University. And thanks to Dr. Kev and his Dewey Tattoo for joining us today. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod if you want to come and tell us what you think. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. <laughs>